Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Välkomna till Rockbottom och idag så kommer vi prata engelska igen. Uh, we could actually speak Swedish because we you're... could try. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> no, I think for, for, for an international audience and a broader listening, let's do it in English. Yeah, and most, I mean, our listeners are mostly Swedish, but then again, everyone in Swedish speaks hey, yes, English. Fair, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Tim Russell. Thank you very much. Studio guru, engineer, tech, producer. What do you? How? How would you present all, yourself all, to someone? All of the above. Nowadays, yeah. trying to make films and documentaries and stuff as well. But uh, <laughs> you know, all music related. It's all good. And you're actually, you're half Swedish. No, But, but you were brought up in Sweden. I grew up as a teenager. Well, from 5 to 24, 25 mm-hmm. here. So I learned music and I learned all about music here. So I that's why your career has been going so well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, actually, it was very. What it taught me over here is that um, in the '70s, in the early '70s, we were so glad when anybody showed up. It didn't matter what sort of music it, they were playing, whether it was rock or I don't know, soul or something, reggae. Mm-hmm. You went to see them because you were just so glad anyone had come all the way to Scot- uh, to Stockholm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it was crazy because you'd find yourself going to see Nazareth one day, then you know next week you go and see Elton John, then you go and see The Shadows. But so you, all your musical background, everything started out Bob here Marley, in Stockholm. All that sort of stuff. Everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. In terms of experiences and listening to music and so on, you know. So how come you ended up living here? Your your parents? Moved my parents. Here? My parent. My dad was moved here on business mm-hmm. and so on, and they they're still here, or at least my mom is still here. My dad's dead now, but yeah. So yeah, we came go- in '65, uh, 1965, and it's gone on from there. I was four years old, and. Uh, uh-huh. So, yeah, my, my, you know, all the best years of your life, as some people like to say, the teenage <laughs> years were done here. So so what shows did you get to see here in Stockholm back in those days? Oh, Something that I mean, people I, st- I still say the best show ever. Um, all these years later, I still say that. And that was uh, Rainbow 76, the Rainbow Rising tour with Dio and Blackmore and so on, with Richie Blackmore out to prove that Deep Purple were a bunch of crap at that time with their uh, Come Taste a Band. They're going, they're going, oh, funk, this is rock, this is uh-huh. heavy. And at Concert Husset. Um, and, um, Which was a really good venue. Except it's all seating. <laughs> but if you really want to know, it's also one of the loudest concerts I ever went to. And though I was 11 rows back in front of Richie, the kids in the first three rows, the moment he hit a chord, they were knocked unconscious. Really? <laughs> and they were being dragged out of the side doors by security. And you could see them. They'd come out and they'd wake up and go, why am I out here? And they'd run back in before anybody could stop them. And he'd hit another chord and down they'd go. That's crazy. It's crazy. My ears <laughs> rang for six days after that. Was it worth it, though? Absolutely. As, as I said, I still hold it as the best show I've ever seen. 
only because you had such high expectations and they were blown away. Normally, if you have high expectations, you're disappointed. Mm -hmm. But this was like I had high and it blew them away. I'm going, wow. I just remember every, the concert coming to an end, everybody going, what, finished already? And then you looked at your watch go, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen 120 minutes go so fast. <laughs> but that's cool, you know. Yeah. Was that some, something that made you, you know, want to be in the music business? Or have you decided um, that already? Or did that no, come later? No, no, no. That came a lot later. Um, I mean, I've always wanted to do something, but I don't con consider myself a great musician. There are plenty better around me, and I'd rather listen to them rather than force someone to listen to my rubbish playing. <laughs> or at least I think it's rubbish. Um, so I decided to get into the technical side, but that was... Ooh, 1985, I suppose, 86, mm -hmm. when I was living in Los Angeles, doing something completely different. Uh-huh. I was designing fruit drinks for Sunkist fruit drinks. That's something... That is comfy something completely yeah. different. But it's still creative. It is? You know? Absolutely. It's still creative. And I used to do something similar at Marabou over here before that, which is how I ended up there. The chocolate company. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. But my dad worked for a chocolate company as well, which is oh. how I got to know Marabou. And we also oh. distributed the orange drinks, which was Sunkiss. So I got to know them. So it's all... Psh. And, and how did you get out of the family rut of being in, oh, in, yeah. The, oh, yeah. in, no, no, in no. the sweet it, business? It was a rut because, you know, it was, there were expectations. You, mm -hmm. know, you should follow in your father's footsteps. It's like, Dad, I know the oh, job, but, know you know, <laughs> it doesn't excite me. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm going to be fat and bald and everything by the age <laughs> I'm 25 if I do that. I didn't want to do that. So, no, I was in Los Angeles and as has been most of my life. Wherever I go to a bar, within five minutes, I'm talking to all the musicians in the room. And 85, then, by that time, that was, you know, the, the glam rock and... and it was. Yeah, and in and fact, not quite, because, I mean, we, we did play some gigs, and I used to play, I'd be invited on stage by some local bands as our friend from London, England, which was <laughs> cool, do a couple of songs. But, I mean, all the sort of poodle stuff that everyone goes on about from that time was really even underground then. Mm-hmm. And I didn't come across it as much as I thought I might. It would be two years later that it really sort of exploded more into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was out there I decided that, okay, I'm not going to... I was helping out some guys doing live sound, and I just thought, this is a hell of a lot of hassle. Plus, I don't get to enjoy the show. I'm working. Mm -hmm. And I want to enjoy a show when I yeah. go to it. So if we're going to do that, let's see if we can do it in a studio. And in those days, there were no things like courses and degrees and all that sort of stuff to get into all the technical sides. You knocked on a door and you said, hi, you got a job? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because my visa in the States was specifically for designing fruit drinks to get a job as a, in a studio would require another one. I said, you know what? Screw that. Let me go to London. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't need, I'm English, so I don't need any workers. And I made a list of the six top studios where all my favorite records had been made. And I said, if Which I can't. Which was? <laughs> well, there was Air Studios, um, Abbey Road. Of course. <laughs> uh, Olympic with uh, Rolling Stones and all of that sort of stuff. There was Townhouse, Trident Studios, and Psalm. Mm -hmm. Those were the six i decided let's let's try those if i don't get into those i'm gonna give it six months then screw it i'll go back to designing for, uh, food okay and um it's one of those classic things where i got an interview at trident and they said we really love you um i got one more interview today but i think you've got the job i got home phone rang sorry the other guy's got way more experience and you don't have any mm -hmm. fair enough but we'll keep you on our list Three weeks later, they phoned back. They said, you still free? I go, yeah. Uh, they said, because the guy we hired was crap. 
You well, lucky you then. <laughs> still want to work here? Can you start tomorrow? I go, not really. They go, why not? I said, well, I got a ZZ Top concert on tonight. Oh, well, oh, on that night. They said, oh, well, I can start in the morning after. They said, that's cool. You know, <laughs> that's a good excuse. We'll buy that excuse. So, yeah. you know, went to see ZZ Top and started at Trident Studios the next morning. And what was your first project there? You um, the first things that were there when I was in a band called Big Audio Dynamite. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Hugh Masekela was in as well. There were three studios in the building, or two in that building and one in an annex studio. Cannot remember who was in the annex studio, but... You work with some pretty impressive names in, in my kind of genre, or the, the podcast kind of genre, though. Yeah, you Gary Moore, for example. Yeah, he, he, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, play a song here with... Uh, you actually worked on this album, I think, Over the Hills and Far Away. Yes. Yeah, let's, let's listen to that. Gary Moore.
Okay, we're back. <clears throat> that was Gary Moore. And tell us about when you worked with him on, on this song. That we well, heard. as I say, this was only about three weeks into me starting there as a sort of assistant and gopher and runner and general whatever, dog's body. And um, he came in. They, were, they came in to do all the acoustic overdubs for that album, the string sections, the acoustic guitars, and all the sort of more lightweight stuff, if you will, but the production stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being asked uh, to go down. They said, oh, Gary wants, you know, can you sort Gary out a cup of tea or coffee or whatever he wants? And I went down into the main studio, and he was just sitting there on his own with his acoustic guitar working out some parts. And I brought him his tea, and he said, what are you doing now? He said, well, right now, nothing. He <laughs> said, sit down. So I sat down on the floor, cross-legged in front of me, and he spent the next 90 minutes playing stuff to me, going, what do you think of this? Do you like this better than that? And I'm just the guy who's just begun. There are producers and everyone else who I thought he should be asking those yeah. questions to. But you know what? It was so wonderful to be taken seriously, and he was such a really nice guy, and so on. He's just like, no. And also, maybe you represent the fans in a better way, because you're not jaded. Yeah, no, uh, well, absolutely. I would <laughs> like to time. think that. Well, no, in general, because, I mean, my passion is still going out to concerts and seeing the real deal rather than what we create in studios, mm -hmm. which can, I mean... Everyone wants to capture a live vibe in a studio, but you never can because there's no audience. And it, musicians feed off an audience rather than a couple of guys behind a glass window sort of looking kind of bored and going, uh, <laughs> yeah, can you do it again, please? <laughs> you know, uh, or we'll keep that if you insist, but I'd like you to do one more. <laughs> Take 75, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, so. And still... You, you, you buy it every time someone says, oh, that was really, really good. Can you do it again? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> no, then you haven't worked with me. I go, come on. You think I'm supposed to be impressed by that? I've seen you. You can do much better than that. Do it again. <laughs> well, Give we're not the talking challenge. about my drinking skills over here now. <laughs> mm, no. <laughs> Maybe in another life. Yeah. So working with all these uh, famous people, you work with... Uh, You come across, I mean, both people have been really super nice to you, but also had there been some assholes along the way? Um, do you know what? Not as many as people imagine. There's always assholes in any business. Mm -hmm. um, I just think I'm quite good with people due to what other jobs I did before the ones we already talked about. And I love music. And I yeah. think that comes across. Probably, yeah. And I've worked with people who other people have warned me, like, oh, he's an asshole or she's an asshole. Be careful. You're going to have a nightmare with them. And do you know what? I never have. No. But then, I, uh, you know, you're working with someone and then you think about the person who told you that and you think, oh, yeah, personality clash. Mm -hmm. That's why they didn't get yeah. um and so on. But I, I don't know. I very, very seldom ever had that happen. And. The assholes, to be honest, are always the youngest kids who've just got signed or whatever, who really have egos that can't get through doors mm -hmm. unless they turn sideways and stuff like that. And they also, if something goes wrong, and you know, in studios, stuff occasionally does go wrong. Oh, Technically, yeah. it breaks down, and they're mm -hmm. the ones that panic like crazy, and they think you're trying to sabotage their project, <clears> and all <throat> sorts of crazy accusations. But an old band will they'll go, okay, how long will it take to fix? Uh, we'll go around the pub, come and get us when it's done. <laughs> you know, it's a whole different attitude. They know that stuff happens. They know nobody's trying to sabotage their career or anything stupid like that. So, um, no, the young kids are the hardest ones because they have, well, they don't really know how the whole thing works. Let's listen to a really nice band, a bunch of really nice guys. 
from Sweden and you worked on this album. This is honestly, honestly, my favorite song ever with this band. Let's listen to Electric Boys and Ready to Believe. Are you ready to believe? Are you ready to Are you ready to believe?
to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. That was the Electric Boys from Sweden. I love this song. It's such a great album. I think so too. And I'd have <clears> to <throat> say that what I like about their new album is that it sounds almost like it could have been made about the same time. It's heavier mm-hmm. than the other stuff and more yep. in line because Freewheeling was certainly at the time just a straight out rock album. It Absolutely. wasn't kind of funky rock or anything like that. No. It was just a straight rock album. And that particular song, I agree. I, I love that song. I think it's great. I think the mixes came out great. And it was crazy as well because the producer was Andy Scarth. And, I mean, I could tell you all sorts of stories about this session, but basically when it came to mixing, we'd run out of time and they'd run out of money. And we had a Christmas deadline to meet. And um, so we went to the studio called Swan Yard and we decided to split the mixes into two separate rooms. And you couldn't get two more different rooms in terms of sound. So what we said is... You start one and I'll start one and halfway through we'll cross and I'll take over yours and you take over mine. And then we'll come back and just check that we're happy that that's kind of sounding the way we both thought it would do because otherwise, you know, how different rooms can sound different. Mm -hmm. You get different sounding mixes to counterbalance that. If we, we keep changing halfway through each mix, we should kind of get a good balance and all of that. That's a daring move. It's a daring move, but it's also when you've got to mix an album in six days and so on. And uh, Turned out great. Yeah. My, my <laughs> boss at my proper studio almost fired me because I told him I'd gone on a holiday for Christmas at that point a week early. And instead, I went to this other studio, Swan Yard, to do that. And he didn't know until the album came out and they got sent a copy. And then I got called up to the office and he's holding a copy of this album. What the hell's all this about? Why were you working at another studio? <laughs> Because when you're on contract to studios, they do not like you doing that sort of thing unless they've given the okay. I, I understand. <laughs> Hell, what can you it do? It is what it is. It came out good. So, yeah, it came out great. You know. What about Lemmy? Well, Lemmy, okay. Lemmy, we have to talk about we Lemmy. We have to talk about Lemmy. And as I suddenly realized, actually, you know, I, don't, I never knew him that well. But Trident Studios was right in the middle of Soho. Mm-hmm. Um, and across the road, or just around the corner, about 100 meters away, there was a rock club called the San Moritz Club. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the Samaritz Club, many people call Lemmy's London office. Okay. <laughs> but it was also because Trident didn't really have a proper lounge for all the artists from the different studios. You know, we'd send them around there and they'll hang there and we'll come and get them and hope they're not too drunk when we pull them out to do something. And any rock band that was in town was down there. And so and Lemmy was almost always down there. And occasionally bump, pop around to the studio at three in the morning, you know, before going home just to see who was there and what was going on. And I was only the assistant on a project. And I cannot for the life of me remember what it was. It wasn't important. But there was a young producer. And the front doorbell rang. And a few minutes later, in walked Lemmy. And everybody's, you know, the young band is sitting there going, oh, God, it's Lemmy. Oh, <laughs> and the producer's like, shit, it's Lemmy. <laughs> and I'm like, hi, Lemmy. And he didn't like me because I often won all the money he used to put in the one-armed bandits. Right after he walked away, I'd oh. put in a coin and get 300 pounds. I'd turn around, you bastard, not again, man. That's my money. Well, it's mine now, mate. However, back to the studio. And Lemmy came in, and there was a take going on, and he stood on the other side of the mixing console, and he stared at this young producer guy who was already going, oh, I'm a bit nervous. And he suddenly goes, no, that's a terrible take. Do it again. And the producer's like, on the talk back, do it again, do it again. Lemmy says so, and Lemmy gives another couple of things. You should do it like this, you should do it like that. The producer's like, do it like this, do it like that. And then Lemmy explodes. He just turns on this kid and says, what the fuck are you doing? I don't know if I can say fuck on your program. I just did. Well, you can. But, <laughs> but he, explodes, he explodes at this young guy. And he said, why the hell are you listening to me? I'm not on your session. I'm not part of your session. I just walked in. And now you're taking all your direction from me. Don't ever do that. It's your show. You're in charge. If anything, you should have kicked me out. Wow. And that was a great lesson. Oh, yeah. In as much as that's absolutely right. And this poor little kid didn't know whether he should kick him out or not. <laughs> but he didn't. But Lemmy just said, no, 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 I'm gone. But learn that lesson. And I thought to myself sitting there, I'm going, you know what? That's probably the best lesson you can ever yeah. learn in terms of production and other things. Because you know that you get all sorts of guests and visitors during sessions and some try and interfere, shall we say, and yeah. others don't. And <laughs> So on, so, uh, but that was a good lesson from Lemmy kind of thing. And then we just see him all the time down at the San Moritz Club and, you know, have beers and so on at three in the morning before Mm -hmm. it closed and stuff. But, uh, yeah, cool guy. And I know his son as well, a little bit, Paul, Mm -hmm. um, who had a great excuse for being late for a session once. He was supposed to do an overdub. Uh, on, on, a, on a couple of tracks and we're waiting for him we're waiting for him and going why is he late well, he's usually pretty punctual mm-hmm. and he finally comes in all dripping with sweat going I'm sorry I'm late I'm sorry I'm late oh, so where were you he said well my dad was playing the academy in Brixton and I always joined him for, for Ace of Spades to do one of the <laughs> solos and he said literally I knew I was on my way here but I had to stop off and do that and he literally jumped out of the taxi ran onto the stage with my guitar, plugged it in, played the solo, waved at Dad, ran off the other side of the stage, and now I'm here to work with you. And I thought, that's cool. I'll buy that as an excuse. That's a pretty cool night visiting Dad at work. (laughs) For 30 seconds. (laughs) You work with Adrian Smith from from our main as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and the fun thing was about this. It was an album that became the uh, ASAP Adrian Smith and Project. And it Mm -hmm. was his first solo album. And though 
some of what we did ended up on the final album. It's a long story, but my ex-boss at that time was scheduled to produce it, but they didn't like him. It was contractual. They didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but they decided that they would actually do all the demos with us. And we spent six and a half, seven weeks demoing on the most expensive amount of money I've ever seen spent on demos. And mm-hmm. Adrian was paying for the lot, so it was his session. And we just told, told them, you know, you don't have to work with that guy. You will, but you, we can do all the stuff you need to do here. And we did from scratch. And we had Nico um, was also on the drums on that. He didn't end up doing the final Nicola album. Brain. Yes, of course. And um, Adrian and two other guitarists, Dave Bucket Colwell, who's in Humble Pie, still is, he's touring the States with Humble Pie now. And a guy called Andy Barnett, who actually lives in Umeå these days oh. uh, with his Swedish woman. And, um, but he and two other phenomenal guitarists and Adrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I could, uh, I had copies. I think I have one or two of the mixes we did with real three guitar rock, in your face rock. Sadly, the final album with my boss, my ex-boss producing it, I wasn't part of that. Um, it's like, sounds like it's all keyboards. It's like, oh, what? because he had a programmer guy and, you know, in, those, in the 80s that programming was becoming the thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Europe and a whole bunch of other bands have very synthy bass songs mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And he decided that was the way to go with that. We're just like, oh, my God, what have you done? I mean, we understood it as, you know, keyboards in the background, a few pads here and there, three guitars in your face. Wow. And instead it came out (laughs) of something else. And I'm really sad for Adrian that he did. I mean, it it did okay. It gave him confidence and stuff. But what sweet, lovely guy, Nico as well. I mean, they're all lovely guys. Um, Dave um, Dave Murray was hanging out as well. And it was just a good old-fashioned rock and roll Let's have fun, no pressure, mm-hmm. six and a half weeks of fun. I mean, we had Adrian's engagement party to his wife, who's still married to Natalie, we did there, and uh, all sorts of things. And, yeah, I mean, we could talk about things that I probably shouldn't <laughs> talk about live. And, though I don't think anybody would deny them, they might not want to hear them. <laughs> well, let's listen to... You'll have to... to read my book someday. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's all in there. <laughs> Let's listen to another song that made an impression on you uh, that was Little Angels and that's 10 miles high. Yeah.
let's talk about this song then, Little Angels, Tell My Side. Well, the reason I actually chose to work on that, I was scheduled to do something else, but they were being produced by Mike Fraser. And Mike Fraser, he works with Thunder, he's working with ACDC right now. Yeah, he even crossed my path for a minute. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) he's a Canadian guy, but he had a great reputation. And like anybody learning any job, the best people to learn from are the experts. Mm-hmm. And I knew of him, and I saw he was in, and I said, no, I want to, I want to work on that. Mm-hmm. They had to do a bit of juggling, but I was you know, one of the senior guys at this other studio, and so I got to do that. And we did a whole bunch of tracks, but, um, which I thought were going to go on an album, but it turned out that's the only one they used, and it, I don't even think it's on an album. I think it just came out as a single. Oh. I may be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but he taught me all sorts of crazy miking techniques and other things I'd never seen before <laughs> and had weird concepts to like make every control room sound the same wherever he was. And he had a case full of um, big flags for like festivals and things yeah. like that. And he's a big motorbiker guy. And he just hung all these flags hanging all over the room, so many of them. You're going, isn't this messing with the sound? He goes, yeah, but it messes with the sound in every room in the same way. Oh. And I thought, wow, actually, that's a pretty cool mm. concept. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, most And it's people, cozy. <laughs> and it's cozy, and it looks cool, <laughs> yeah. too, you know? Um, but that, uh, and a whole bunch of other things I'd never seen anyone else do. And so, you know, I felt I walked out of that. Not only was it, were the guys good fun and so on, but it was a great learning experience when you really do learn new things as opposed yeah. to just seeing the same old things recycled. And because everything's about them. what do they do that no one else does? What, what makes would, them special? What advice would you give to someone starting out as, as an engineer or, or producer to get into the business or, you know, finding their own sound and way to work? and? I'd have, you know, I'd have to say that... Finding their unique selling point, as we say nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the real... To me, the real thing that's gone missing now is all the most of the big studios with multi-rooms and so on have disappeared. Um, and the bonus of working in places like that is you had a huge turnover of people and a huge turnover of artists. So you got the opportunity to work with hell of a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. Loads and loads of different people from all sorts of backgrounds. And as I said, everybody's got their own technique. No two people are the same. Today, everybody does a course at school where they learn the same thing. Everybody Mm -hmm. learns the same thing. And then they go and do their own thing. And they don't get the chance to learn from all these other producers or engineers or other thing and pick up techniques. They Google it instead, perhaps? Or they watch (laughs) on YouTube. Don't do that, kids. Go actually out there and learn it. There's so much rubbish on YouTube. I mean, yeah, yeah, my mind boggles when I see kids say, oh, I saw this thing on YouTube. They say do something like this or that. And you go, what? What? But. No, there's no substitute for experience, and I think that goes for any job. And the better people you can work with, the better it is for you. Having said that, you can suddenly find yourself working with somebody who has a big name, and you walk out and go, is that all he does? Uh-huh. I mean, I know people that have worked with some serious producers and, and so on and come back to me and go, oh, we're so disappointed. <laughs> you know, all that guy did is sit at the back of the room and smoke weed, you know? <laughs> And there's a classic example of that, um, just as to how people perceive producers and engineers. There's an interview um, to do with Bruce Springsteen's um, Born to Run album. If you, on the 
DVD, mm -hmm. uh, 30th anniversary, they had a DVD with it about all the recording of the album and stuff like that. And they have an interview at the end with both uh, Bruce Springsteen and Steve Van Zandt. And Bruce Springsteen is going on and on about how he couldn't have done the album without this producer. He couldn't have done this. That guy was so important, absolutely crucial to everything. Without him, there would have never been an album. Steve Van Zandt's asked the same question. He goes, I haven't a fucking clue what he did. <laughs> I don't even know why he was there. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> well, it probably made the boss feel uh, comfortable. Sometimes that's yeah. all that's necessary. Yeah. And sometimes it is just that. Or maybe he just brought some really good weed to the studio. Who knows? I think there might have been a little bit more of that to it as well. Or something else. But yes, um, yeah, sometimes that can be the case. But in those days, the A&R men provided all of that. Oh, yeah. They come in at 10 in the morning and put a large bag of something on the mixing console. Say, will that do for the day? Yeah. See you tomorrow. Oh, God, I remember those days <laughs> when the record companies had money. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, the scary thing is I don't think for the first five or six years I ever worked on a project that didn't have at least a million-pound budget. Mm -hmm. Try and ask anybody if they've had a million-pound budget in the last 20 years. No, and certainly not like $10,000 a week on extras. Well, <laughs> when we all that, know where that they went. end up having to earn that money back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the difference, too. In those days, you could earn it back. These days, uh-uh. No, uh, or you... you could get a contract that said non-recoupable. <laughs> well, I mean, as, as they say, and the nice thing about non-recoupables is the fact that they didn't require receipts. <laughs> Around 1990-91, the accountants started taking over and they wanted receipts for everything. Yep. And certain things don't come with receipts. Nope. <laughs> At least not for what you think they do. <laughs> well, can we have 20 sandwiches for me today? <laughs> I'll have to bill it as that. No, I, I mean, those days were a lot of fun as well, just because of that. I mean, people get the wrong impression that, oh, maybe we just did that all the time and so on. And no, you don't. You've got a job to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I think, it, I think it's just as much fun nowadays, because I think it's more of a democratic way of working. You can get to see a lot of new bands on YouTube or whatever. So there's a lot of crap that comes up, obviously. But there's also a lot of great bands that get a chance to like build their own careers through with no money and just because they're really good at promoting themselves. And I think that's really, really nice and really cool. So, I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm not the one that says, oh, I love the better fur or something like that. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I, I understand completely where, you, where you're coming from. And I think in many ways it is a good thing. But like selling anything, ultimately, it's your promotion that costs money. Mm -hmm. The more promotion, the more chance you have. It's of not course. a guarantee in any way, shape or form. Um, but it helps. And yeah. when you have half a million pounds in marketing... Of course. Uh, and, you know, when all the kids around 2000 started saying, oh, we don't need record companies, they're the devil, they're ripping us all off. Um, what, we'll do it ourselves. What they didn't realize is the amount of money the record companies put into promotion mm -hmm. and all the contacts they had and all the radio stations and TV stations yep. and all that that would guarantee that your face was in everyone's yeah. face. I mean, getting a great Instagram account won't make you a rock star. No. Sorry S about sadly that, not. Yeah, no, sadly not. You've got to have one, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, do you still go out to see a lot of bands? I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> well, but for the listeners, <laughs> I was just counting. I mean, because the other day at Easter, I went down to Engeland to see uh, 
Burning Rain with Doug Aldridge and Keith um, St. John, who ironically I'd only seen the week before in London anyhow. Uh, but hey, what else are you going to do on Easter Day? Yeah. But um, no, I was looking because as of last year, I started keeping track of who I go and see and what I go and see. Last year, I think I saw about uh, 280 bands. Uh, this year already I've seen 92 performances, some, are, some bands I've seen two or three times, but basically a good 80 bands I've seen already this year. So, so what's the best this year so far? Uh, oof. I have to get my stat. Yeah. Pause that for a second. <laughs> actually, actually, I don't know if I can get it in the head on the internet. But um, good bands this year, Writer's Creed, um, I like Bad Touch. They're both kind of a little bit more southern rock rather mm -hmm. than hard rock, but they're pretty rocking. I enjoyed a Swedish band recently, um, a couple of weeks ago, Hexed, mm -hmm. uh, Uppsala band. Um, this girl I like, uh, Beth Blade and the Beautiful Disasters, mm -hmm. who were on the Kiss Cruise last year with Thunder Mother and all the other bands yeah. like that. Um, so if you would... Uh, I'm trying to think of bands that fit your re your <laughs> listeners rather than up because there are others as well. But you might go, oh, yeah. you know. And funnily enough, what I'm enjoying is all these guys going out and doing acoustic tours and so on, where you get stuff, you know, done in a way you've like not heard it done. Like established bands, like yeah, yeah, like Doug Aldrich from yeah. Dead Daisies and White Snake, mm -hmm. sort of, you know, sitting there two feet in front of you playing an acoustic guitar. That's cool. Yeah, you know, um, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I'm open to things being done differently because I get very upset. And I was just discussing this yesterday with people who say, oh, I don't like going to concerts because they don't play it just like the record. Oh. And I've come across that <laughs> more weird. and more. Oh, well, I think so, but they don't. And they get disappointed if they go and somebody uh, to see their, fa their favorite artist and the artist has changed the solo in the song or done a slightly different arrangement. They walk out going, oh, it's not like the record. I paid to go and see I, the record. I can, I can see somewhat of a point in that because sometimes when no, you see bollocks. a band, no bollocks. Sit at home and listen to the record. No, but then. sometimes you, you listen to your favorite song, and and then you go see the concert, and it sounds nothing like your favorite song because the band is bored from playing it the same way. Yeah, they got to keep the themselves excited. Just keeps wailing, but I think that's sort of a finger in the face for the audience. I mean, of course, it shouldn't sound like exactly on the album because that's super boring. But to do, you know, a, a reggae version of, of a metal song, that's, that's not fair to the audience, I yeah, don't think I, so. I, Just because you're bored. The audience isn't bored. They haven't heard that song live yet. You hope so. <laughs> no, but, but on, on that case, I mean, actually, Burning Rain in London a couple of weeks back, they had a young kid supporting one of the support bands. I think it's some Polish kid. Name's kind of irrelevant because uh, I can't even pronounce it or remember it properly. <laughs> But he was doing covers, and he was doing covers of Black Sabbath and Deep mm -hmm. Purple and Ozzy Osbourne and acoustic, but yeah. like stoner acoustic. So, I mean, he'd announced this next song as like Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, and you're going, did he say Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath? Couldn't have done. I just thought it was a mumble, but then he's playing along, and there's this really laid-back acoustic stuff, and suddenly you start listening to it, it gets to the chorus, and you go, my God, it is. Uh -huh. You know? And to me, I think that's really cool. Mm hmm I remember seeing years ago, seeing Eric Clapton, this is in the 70s, and he managed to get to the chorus of Layla without anybody realizing the song was Layla. Well, okay, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's pretty amazing to be able to do that, and everybody goes, my God. I have to agree with that. You know? Well, thank you so much, Tim, for visiting me here at Rock. 
bottom. It's, it's my pleasure. I mean, this has been fun, man. You know I could talk for forever. But, uh, <laughs> we'll have to get back well, to I'm you trying, someday. Hey, I'm trying to get a book published if anybody knows a publisher that wants to hear all these stories anymore. Have you got a forlegger there out there? So, take contact with Tim Russell. Thank you so much. And let's finish off, as I always do, up your bottom. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.